right, good morning, everybody. So glad to see you this morning. If you have your Bible, you need to turn to Revelation chapter 15. Uh, you third graders who have those brand new Bibles, you can crack them open to Revelation chapter 15. And um, maybe over the next several months as we finish out this study, that new Bible will just fall open uh, to Revelation. Every time you open it, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. So last week we saw a lot at the end of Revelation chapter 14. We tried to stay at a fairly high altitude and not chase any one detail too far and get lost in the process. We saw some angels make announcements about salvation and judgment. And then we saw this important call to perseverance and we saw the promise of rest for the people of God. And then we saw at the end of the text this two-sided harvest. One, gathering into eternal life for the people of God and one gathering in to the winepress of God's wrath for his enemies. By way of application, I told you that there is good news for the whole world. Good news that we should announce like that first angel who was flying about in midheaven, delivering good news to the whole world. And part of the message of good news that we share is that judgment is coming. Judgment is real, and judgment is coming, but salvation is available. And so we invite men and women and boys and girls all over the world to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, for he is our only hope. And that whole bit of application is going to be very similar to what we'll see in the text today. Secondly, last week I said be encouraged to endure with faith and obedience, that we should hold fast to the hope that is ours in Christ alone and walk in obedience and never give up trusting in Christ, no matter what trouble may come our way. And then finally, last week we saw in the text that death is not defeat. The text says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Death is not defeat for the people of God. It is, it is a homecoming um, and, and eternal glory for us. And so uh, it's a blessing for those who are in the Lord to die, to go to be with the Lord. Well, the text this week makes a bit of transition. It's not disconnected from what we saw over the last few weeks. In fact, um, this text today kind of serves as a bookend to the last section that began in chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. But at the same time, it also serves as introduction to the next big section of Revelation, namely the seven bowls of wrath. You may remember that we have seen seven seals already, then we saw seven trumpets, and now we come to seven bowls. And I will continue to argue that these three rounds of seven are essentially retellings of the same things from different perspectives and using different imagery. They teach us about the escalating judgment of God against the rebellious world. That will culminate one day in the final judgment and the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now as we think about that final judgment, let's not miss God's gracious and merciful purpose here. In the meantime, even in this text today, God is giving people an opportunity and a motivation to repent and believe. That's even now what he's doing because the great day of judgment has not come and God is giving people a chance to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. The question is, will they? And really the question is not, will they? The question is, will we? Will we be repenting of our sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you repent and believe? So let's read together in Revelation chapter 15. We're going to cover this whole chapter today. I think it's really one big scene. It has kind of three parts, but it's one big scene. And so we want to deal with it all together today. Let's read it together. Revelation chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Third graders, are you there? Have you found it? Yeah? Okay, good. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. 
seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord God Almighty, King of the nations, we praise you today for you are worthy of our praise. Indeed, you are worthy of praise from every man, woman, boy, and girl on the planet. For you are holy. You alone are holy. There is none like you. There is none so merciful and gracious as to save, rescue, redeem, forgive, and adopt sinners like us from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And there is none so just and righteous as to pour out wrath on those who go on in their rebellion in their sinfulness, in their opposition to you. So we praise you for your grace and for your wrath. We pray that you will help us to praise you for your holy grace and your holy wrath. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, look at verse 1. It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. We have been used to seeing this language in Revelation, then I saw, or I saw a sign. In fact, this particular language takes us back to chapter 12. Remember in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. It's important to remember the nature of apocalyptic literature at this point. John, in this text, is describing for us the things that he saw. And he tells us in this text that those things are signs which point to a truth. So we need to be asking ourselves as we work through apocalyptic literature, what does he see, what does it mean, and what does it stir in us? What does he see, what does it mean, and what does this stir in us? He refers to the sign that he sees here as great and marvelous. That's pretty interesting language. He says, I saw a sign, great and and marvelous. That word great is a word that we keep seeing in Revelation. It's mega. It means really big. We've, we've been familiar with the mega voice, this super loud voice that we keep hearing occasionally. Well, this is a super big vision, a super big sign that he is seeing. And he calls it not only great as in big, he calls it marvelous. That word marvelous is sometimes defined as describing an awe-evoking sight. A dramatic sense of wonder, in other words. Moving the beholder to their deepest emotions, one scholar says. Sometimes it's translated as amazing or wonderful. He says, I saw a sign, it was great 
and it was marvelous. And that is super interesting because what he sees as the text unfolds is not all pleasant. It's not all happy. And yet he calls it great and marvelous. And I want you to hang on to that because it's going to be important as we move into application. What he sees, not all happy, but it is marvelous. It's interesting because what he sees are these seven angels with seven plagues that are the wrath of God. And we're going to see this spelled out in more detail over the next few weeks. But for today, let's suffice it to say that what John sees with those angels and the plagues that they pour out of their bowls is wrath and judgment. We are talking about the wrath of God. Daryl Johnson says, what are we to do with this word wrath? One thing we cannot do is dismiss it as unique to the last book of the Bible, implying that if we turn to other books, we do not encounter the wrath of God. I want to stop there and say, if I asked you for displays of God's wrath in the Bible, I believe that the examples you give would be from all over the scriptures. Some of you might immediately think of Sodom and Gomorrah. That seems to be one of the places we go when, when I say, give me, an, give me an example of the wrath of God. Someone will say, Sodom and Gomorrah, and God rained down fire and brimstone from, from heaven. Um, some of you might think of the flood during Noah's day as an example of the wrath of God. Some of you who would be given the golden star as students today would say, no, no, no. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest demonstration of the wrath of God that we see anywhere in Scripture. You, you would be right about that. My point is, if we talk about the wrath of God, we talk about the wrath of God all over the scriptures. It's not isolated to the book of Revelation. I think Daryl Johnson makes an important point there and says, it's not isolated to this last book of the Bible. We see the wrath of God on display all over the scriptures. Johnson goes on and quotes a guy named Leon Morris from Australia. I don't know why that's a qualification, but um, he, he defines, this guy defines the wrath of God as a strong and settled opposition to all that is evil. A strong and settled opposition arising out of God's very nature. God's wrath, he says, is a burning zeal for the right coupled with a perfect hatred for everything that is evil. That's a, that's a, that's a pretty good description of what the wrath of God is. I like that last part in particular. Is It's a burning zeal for what is right coupled with perfect hatred for everything that is evil. And what comes out of the character of God, what comes out of the person of God in light of that kind of sin is wrath. I guess what I want to get at right here off the bat is we must not dodge the concept of God's wrath. We must not try to avoid the attribute of his wrath and embrace only his grace and mercy. I think the more we understand and embrace the reality of his wrath, the more we will appreciate his grace and mercy. Before we move on from this part of the text, I want to make a note about John's use of the word last and finished here. Some people take these two words to argue their view of the linear and chronological progression of these events. They say, first we have the seven seals, and then in chronology, in history, we have the seven uh, uh, trumpets, and then we have the seven bowls. They argue essentially that these are three distinct things playing out in a timeline, like you could put them on the calendar. And that may be the case. I'm not in that camp, but it may be the case. But I want you to know that apocalyptic prophecy does not usually unfold so neatly. When you're talking about apocalyptic prophecy, there's usually not a nice, neat timeline that you can follow. It's kind of all over the place, and we need to just embrace that. I think it's better to argue that these plagues, these bowls, are the last, and they finish the wrath of God in the sense that they are the last of what he sees of this kind of thing. And they all, whether we're talking about seals or trumpets or bowls, they all end at the same place, the great day of the Lord, 
and the final judgment. So I believe in that sense, these are the last and they are finished in that it's the last of what John sees of this kind of thing. Look at verse two. He says, and I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. So John first sees these angels with the plagues of God's wrath and then he sees something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. We've encountered this sea of glass before in Revelation, and when we have seen it, we have seen it in close proximity to the throne of God, close proximity to the presence of God. When we see the sea of glass, we're talking about the presence of God. And when we see fire in Revelation, it is almost always a reference to judgment. And so when we put these two concepts together, it gives us a sense that the judgment is coming from the throne of God. This judgment is coming from his presence. In other words, what we are going to see here is his wrath that will be poured out. His wrath will be poured out. John also sees at the same time a group of people standing on the sea of glass. That is, they are standing near the throne of God, near his presence. And they are identified as those who have been victorious over the beast and his image and his number. I think this is a reference to the people of God generally, to the faithful ones, to the redeemed. That is us. At least I hope it's us. They stand near God, but they are not under his wrath. They are not consumed by this fire, for these are the ones who have been saved. They stand in a position of safety because they are aligned with the one who is on the throne. And the language that he uses here of overcoming or conquering the beast is significant throughout Revelation. We've, we've seen it from the very beginning. When we preached through the letters to the seven churches, there was this consistent call to overcome or to conquer. And the path to overcoming is described in Revelation chapter 12. We just saw this a few weeks ago. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, it says, they overcame him, that is, the believers overcame the beast because of the blood of the lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. So we learn from that that we overcome the beast not by killing him, not by fighting him with weapons from this world. We overcome the beast by trusting the Lord. Even if the beast kills us, we trust in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The beast may think he has overcome or conquered us, especially when he kills some of us, but in the end, we are the ones who are victorious. The day of the beast is coming. The day of his judgment is coming. And this is, once again, a call to faithful endurance. A call to faithful endurance that we have seen throughout the book of Revelation. The way these people overcome is the same way the lamb overcomes. By giving his life in total trust of the one who sits on the throne. The last thing I want you to notice in verse 2 is that these people have harps. And so this is the language and imagery of worship. And let's look at the content of their worship in verse 3. Verse 3 says, They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying. Now there's a little bit of debate about this, but I'm pretty convinced that this is a reference, this reference to the song of Moses is a reference to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, we've mentioned a couple times over the last few weeks, is the song that God's people sing after they are delivered from the Egyptian army through the Red Sea. You know that, you know that part of the Exodus story, right? Like they come, they come to the Red Sea and, they, and they're 
kind of stymied, right? They, they have the sea in front of them, and they have the pursuing Egyptian army behind them. And they're like, what are we going to do? How in the world are we going to make this? And the Lord makes a way, right? He opens up the sea, and his people cross on the dry land. And then as the Egyptian army goes after them, the Lord closes up the sea on them and wipes them out. And when they get to the other side of this, when God's people are on the other side of it, they sing a song of reaction and reflection upon what has happened there. And if you look at that song in Exodus chapter 15, which I would encourage you to do today, you're going to notice a few things. Three things will stand out to you. First, that song is a celebration of what God has done. That song is very much God-centered in its focus. It is not about the people's experience of salvation. It's not, it's not about their victory. It's about the work of the Lord. You're going to see the language of, you did this, and you did that, and you did such and such. The Lord did this thing. It is very much God-centered. That's the first thing you'll notice. Second thing you'll notice is it is a celebration of the deliverance that he has brought to his people. You're going to see that there is a note of that song that is like, you brought us through. You brought us through to the other side. You saved us. You rescued us. You redeemed us. You delivered us. That is very much a part of the song. But the third thing you're going to notice is it is a celebration of the destruction that God has brought upon his enemies. It's a celebration of the judgment that God executed on the Egyptian army. And arguably, it is this third point. This point about the destruction of his enemies that features more, most strongly in the song. It is, it, is, it is focused on and emphasizing God's victory over and his judgment of his enemies. That's a big part of the song that they sing when they get to the other side. And in many ways, this song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15 is a shadow of the song of the Lamb. Who brings a greater deliverance to his people, right? And he brings a greater judgment upon his enemies. We see here the Old Testament song of promise in the, in the song of Moses and the New Testament song of completion in the song of the Lamb. What we have seen throughout Revelation is a celebration of the work of the Lamb, a work that only the Lamb can do. We've seen both sides of the work of the Lamb too. He delivers by his blood, he rescues, he redeems, he saves by his blood, and he destroys by his wrath. So one of the things that maybe you, maybe you haven't been paying close attention to is this phrase, the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb will come, and we're going to see it poured out over the next few weeks as we look at these seven bowls. So verse 3 says, They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, look at the, look at the song they sing. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. I think there are two sections of this song that the people sing. The end of verse 3 seems to teeter-totter between who God is and what God does. Who God is and what God does. It says in the text that he does great and marvelous works. Well, that, that phrase should get your attention because we've already seen it once today. Right? Even in the text today, this idea of great and marvelous works, a great and marvelous sign in heaven, namely the angels who have the wrath of God. He does great and marvelous works because he is the Lord God, the Almighty. He does great things because of who he is. And then it says he does what is righteous and true. 
whether in the display of his mercy, the execution of his mercy, or the execution of his wrath, he does what is righteous and true because he is the king of the nations. King of the nations. So we've got this, this is a good way to sing to the Lord, right? What he does is an outworking of who he is. He does the things he does because of who he is. Whether that is, whether he's displaying his mercy or his wrath, it is flowing out of who he is. Verse 4 seems to give the foundation for why everyone should fear and glorify him. It says, who will not fear, O Lord, and who will not glorify your name? And then it says, four, four, four. There are three bases for this worship of the Lord. The first thing it says is because he is holy. He is holy. Why should everyone fear you? Why should everyone worship you? Because you alone are holy. The expository commentary says, the people recognize God alone as holy. That is utterly unique and distinct from anything in creation. He is in a category by himself. And we need to learn to think of holiness that way. Oftentimes we just equate as if they are same, same, holiness and righteousness. Right? And they, and they definitely do travel together. But holiness is this idea of he's, he's totally separate, totally distinct, totally in a class of his own. I love that. In a category by himself. In fact, the, the, the picture behind the language of holiness is to cut something and then separate it. To cut something off and remove it as if it's, it's totally distinct, totally set apart, totally different for a special use. God is holy and therefore everyone should worship him because of his holiness. It says also that they should worship him because he's for all the nations. In other words, this, this God that we are called to worship is not a local God. He's not a local, he's not just the God of these people who track their descendancy from Abraham. It's, it's not just those people for whom he is God. He is king of the nations. He is for all the nations. And because his righteousness has been revealed. Why should people worship him? All people worship him because his righteousness has been revealed. Whether in salvation or in judgment, his righteousness is being revealed. That's good news. That's good news that even in salvation, God is completely righteous. Even in, the, even in the justification of sinners who deserve only his wrath and judgment, he justifies them in a way that doesn't set aside his righteousness. He justifies them in a way that is righteous. Paul seems to emphasize this in Romans, that his righteousness is on display in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ because he provided a substitute to take punishment to take the wrath in our place his wrath is satisfied in salvation and his wrath is satisfied in judgment in eternal condemnation of his enemies with both redemption the point is with both redemption and wrath in their minds the people of God sing praises the people of God are provoked to worship when they consider God's mercy and God's wrath they're not repulsed by the idea of his wrath. Rather, they are stirred up to worship him because of his wrath. That's something that we oftentimes don't have a box for, but we need, we need to have a box for that. Look at verse 5. It says, After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. 
Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke and the glory of God of the, from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels was finished. Now, rather than try to focus on the details of this portion of the text, let's try to get this whole picture. Basically, what we see here is this vivid portrayal of the full wrath of God coming against his enemies right out from his very presence in the heavenly tabernacle. Earlier in the text, it was the sea of glass that is in proximity to his presence. Now we're using the imagery of the heavenly tabernacle. That's about his presence coming out of his very presence from the heavenly tabernacle. This wrath is administered by these angels who are messengers of the Lord, obedient servants of the Lord. And then that business at the end of verse 8 with all the smoke and the fact that no one was able to enter the temple until this was finished, that simply indicates it's glorious. This is a glorious action that is happening here. The other times when we see the temple filled with smoke, the other times when we see people are not able to enter it, it's at a special manifestation of the presence of God in the temple in his glory, his glorious presence in a unique way so that people cannot enter. So, so this thing is a glorious thing. What is going to happen as the bowls are poured out is not repulsive, it's glorious, it's marvelous, it's great and marvelous, as the text says. Now, when we talk through this part of the text on Tuesday, which is one of my favorite times of the week, by the way, we considered why this is shared with John, why this is shared with us through John. Why are we given this graphic picture of the wrath of God poured out on his enemies? And it's only going to get more graphic over the next couple of weeks as we see the bowls actually poured out. Why, why is it shared like this? Well, though the world is not the primary audience for Revelation, I think there is a message for the world here. I think this is shared on, on a secondary sense for the world's sake. For the sake of those who are not God's people, for the sake of those who have not repented of their sins and trusted in Christ... This is shared for the sake of your souls. Because you will either experience this full wrath of God or you will experience the full grace of God. Like those, are, those are the options. You either will drink the whole cup of the wrath of God or you will experience the full cup of God's mercy and grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no neutrality. There's no middle road. We, we want to be indifferent. We want to be in this middle road. We want to be neutral. That's the language that Pastor Dylan uses often. We want to be neutral, but there's no such thing as neutrality. Neutrality is not an option. It's either wrath or grace, one or the other. And so, so in many ways, this text is for evangelism. This text is to teach people the truth about a coming day when men and women and boys and girls will either be overwhelmed and overcome by the wrath of God or they will stand with him on the sea of glass experiencing his grace and mercy as his people and we will sing his praises even as he pours out his wrath. Maybe today is the day for you to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ for the very first time. Maybe today, I read, I read a thing on social media this, this weekend that said, that said biblical prophecy Prophecy is not given to scare people, but to prepare people. And I was like, 
I think it's both. I think biblical prophecy is given to scare people, to prepare people. Like, I, I, cannot, I cannot read through some of this, especially trying to put myself in the shoes of a lost person and read through Revelation and not be terrified of the beast, the dragon, and the wrath of God. Like, what's, what's even scarier than the beast and the dragon is the wrath of God for all of eternity. That is terrifying. And God has given us this prophecy to scare us in order to prepare us, in order to bring about repentance. I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. Maybe he scares us in order to prepare us. Maybe he scares us in order to bring us to repentance. And maybe that's what's happening in your heart today. And I would invite you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. I think that's part of why this text is given. It's given for the world, for the sake of evangelism. But more than that, it's given for the church, for the people of God who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's given for us, for purpose. This text is intended to do something in us. One, it's intended to give us a full picture of who God is. We oftentimes have a very one-dimensional view of the Lord. Wrath is part of who he is. The wrath of God is part of the holiness of God. The wrath of God is an attribute of God. And we need a full picture of God for the sake of worship. We need a well-rounded picture of God. We need a biblical picture of God in order to inspire our worship. We should worship him even in his wrath, even in light of his wrath, knowing that his wrath is just and right and true. We need to guard ourselves against a very subtle form of idolatry where we look at the attributes of God and we say, hmm, I think I'll have the grace, I think I'll have the mercy, I think I'll have the righteousness, but I'm going to pass on the wrath, I'm going to pass on the justice, I'm going to pass on those things, I'm going to pass on his anger, because that just doesn't sit well, it just doesn't taste good to me. You don't get to do that. That is idolatry. That is idolatry. Kevin DeYoung said on Twitter this past Wednesday, he said, if we have a God who is no longer a God of salvation and judgment, then we have made for ourselves a God other than the God of the Bible. We have made for ourselves a God other than the God of the Bible. So God gives us this section of Revelation to give us a full picture of who he is so that when we consider his wrath, we will worship him just like those folks on the sea of glass do, that we would worship him. It's given to the church to give us a full picture of who he is. Number two, it's given to the church to drive us to proclamation. This should be part of our proclamation. The, the stuff about God's wrath and his judgment against unbelievers, against his enemies, should be part of our proclamation. We should tell people that judgment is coming. We don't, we don't need to be like the crazy guy on the street corner with a sign that says judgment, only judgment is coming. That's not the fullness of our message, but that is part of our message. Part of our message is that judgment is coming. It is sure, it is just, and it is right. This should drive us to proclamation, not just that judgment is coming, but that salvation is available through Jesus Christ. This should also drive us to proclamation because it should give us a burden to boldly witness because we don't want anybody to experience the wrath of God, do we? I hope not. I hope that you are able to look at even your worst enemy and say, I don't want the wrath of God for them. Because we know that we all deserve his wrath. We who have been rescued and redeemed and saved, we know that we deserve his wrath. And he's only delivered us as a free gift. 
Not, not as something we've earned. We're not righteous on our own. We're unrighteous. And he has brought us in and adopted us into his family and made us righteous. And when we look at other people, that's what we should desire for them as well. So I think this picture of the wrath of God being poured out should drive us to proclamation, should be part of our message, and it should be a burden upon us to boldly witness to the world. And thirdly, this is given to the church because it helps us persevere and endure injustice, persecution, and brokenness. This picture of final judgment, this picture of wrath of God, helps us endure our present injustices, our present persecutions, and the present brokenness of this world. One of the overarching messages of Revelation is, it won't always be like this. And that is super helpful for the people of God in the first century who are being persecuted, who have been persecuted basically for an entire generation by their government. It is good for them to hear, it won't always be like this. Laura often says, when I uh, grieve and lament over, uh, or whine probably is, is, is a better, uh, more faithful um, representation of what I do. When I whine about injustice and hardship on this earth, Laura often says, there's a judge in heaven. Don't, don't forget there's a judge in heaven. And he will make everything right. He is righteous and just and true. John Piper, John Piper says it quite bluntly when he says, no one gets away with anything in this, in this universe. No one gets away with anything in this universe because God is just. This text helps us persevere and endure injustice, persecution, and brokenness because it sets our minds on the day when God will make it all right. James Hamilton Jr. really hammers this home when he says, if you understand the severity of the completion of God's wrath, the gospel will be more precious to you than life. If you understand the severity of God's wrath, you will look 13.10 in the face. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, it goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. You will stare captivity and the sword in the face and say, better that than the wrath of God. Better to be put in prison for the gospel than face God's wrath. Rather, rather Better to be slain with the sword for the gospel than to face God's wrath. And to know that as you face those things, there will be justice in the end. There will be a righteous judgment in the end. It helps us endure. And that's part of what Revelation is all about, helping us persevere and endure in this world. So I think this text and the picture of the wrath of God is, is given for the world for the sake of evangelism to bring people into the family of God, to bring about repentance and faith. And I think it's given for the church that we would have a bigger picture of who God is than just, oh, he's a loving teddy bear. We have a well-rounded biblical picture of who God is. It drives us to proclamation, and it helps us persevere and endure in the difficult times. So here are three overarching applications from today's text. Number one, worship God. We need, we need to join in with that group that's standing on the, the sea of glass and singing the praises of God talking about who he is and what he does, talking about how everyone should worship him because of who he is, we need to worship God. We need to recognize that mercy is real. His grace is real. And it is great and marvelous. And we've got no problem with that, right? We, we got no pro we've got song after song after song that talks about great and marvelous mercy and grace of God. We sing about that all the day long. And it's right and true. 
But we also need to understand that his wrath is real. And it is great and marvelous. It is great and marvelous. We don't, we don't sing a lot of songs about that here in America. We don't sing a lot of songs about that. But there are places where believers sing songs about that. There are periods in history where God's people sang songs about his wrath. Because they were longing for not only a day of deliverance, but a day of justice. We need to worship God for his mercy and for his wrath. We need to be well-rounded. We need to be biblically informed. We need to avoid the temptation to pick and choose which attributes of God we are going to embrace and which attributes of God we're going to reject. The God of the Bible is a, is a God full of mercy and a God full of wrath. The God of the Bible is holy. And his mercy and his wrath are demonstrations of his holiness. Listen to what Grant Osborne says. He says, The idea of judgment is a serious and somber issue, and it seems to conflict with the idea of a loving and merciful God. Yet in Revelation, the justice and love of God are intertwined, and one cannot exist apart from the other. A holy God must judge sin and sinners, and this includes the vindication of the saints for all they have suffered. I want us to get that picture of the intertwined. So often we, we see the, the mercy of God and the wrath of God as enemies, as opposites, as this clash. And yet they go together as part of who he is. Let's worship God for his mercy, for his wrath. Let's worship God as he's revealed himself to be and not create an idol of our own making. Number one, worship God. Number two, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. <laughs> this, the judgment has not come yet. There is time for repentance and faith. There, there is time for conversion. Now is the day for evangelism. Preach the gospel. Tell the world that judgment is coming and that salvation is available. Judgment is coming and salvation is available only in Jesus Christ. One of the purposes of this text is to call people to faith and repentance. So preach the gospel. Tell the world. Be like that angel. Get up at a high point and tell everyone you can about the hope that is available in Christ. And the last application is, is personal reflection. Where do you stand? This has been one of the questions we've, we've tried to deal with over and over again, is do you belong to him? Are you one of his people? Well, in the language of, of this text today, the question is where do you stand? Do you stand on the sea of glass with him? Like aligned with him? Or do you stand under one of those bowls? under the wrath that's going to be poured out. Where, where do you stand? I'm telling you, if, if you stand under his wrath today, that can change. You repent of your sins and trust in Christ, that changes. You're adopted into the family of God. You're brought, brought onto the sea of glass to sing his praises for the rest of eternity. Where do you stand? Let's stand together and pray. Father in heaven, Lord God Almighty, King of the nations, we do praise you today because you are worthy of our praise. Indeed, you are worthy of praise from every man and woman and boy and girl on the planet. You are holy. You alone are holy. There's none like you. You're in a category all by yourself. There's no one 
so merciful and so gracious like you to rescue and redeem and save and forgive and adopt sinners like us from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There's no one like you who is so just and so righteous as to pour out holy wrath on those who go on in their rebellion, go on in their sinfulness, go on in their opposition to you. So we do praise you today for your grace and your wrath. And we do pray today that you will help us to praise you for your holy grace and your holy wrath. We pray these things in Jesus' name.